This podcast contains content that may be alarming to some listeners, including mentions of sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. When the police doesn't show off, there are incidences of cutter raiding. Properties have been lost in this, most of these locations that we, we operate. And there has been revenge because if the community do not receive protection, they take the law into their hand and then they use revenge. Because if the police did not come into the scene at the right, at, at the right time to rescue the properties or to rescue the life of the people, then the community will reorganize themselves and follow the, 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 the attackers and then do the same. Every day, 100 civilians are killed in conflict and countless more are harmed. Yet their perspectives are often missing from the stories we tell about war. This is the Civilian Protection Podcast, a monthly podcast produced by Civic and PAX. Hey everyone, this is Mark Orlasco, military advisor from PAX. And I'm Annie Scheel, U.S. Advocacy Director at Center for Civilians in Conflict, or CIVIC. Our organizations work in conflicts around the world to protect civilians caught in war. Today's episode takes us to South Sudan, which for years was a site of a brutal war for independence from Sudan. After gaining independence in 2011, two main political competitors soon got into a conflict over power. This led to a full-blown civil war in 2013, as the different factions came head-to-head, and soldiers of the two largest ethnic groups in South Sudan, the Dinka and the Noor, aligned themselves with the different competitors, putting these groups largely on opposing sides of the conflict. Violence soon spread throughout the country, and civilians came to bear the brunt of it, as all parties to the conflict targeted civilians, often doing so along ethnic lines. There was widespread sexual violence, forced recruitment of children, and destruction of personal property and even entire villages. Since then, multiple peace agreements and power-sharing agreements have brought the civil war to an official end. However, violence has continued at lower levels, while political and intercommunal tensions have persisted. And this low-level violence sometimes flares up, resulting in hundreds or even thousands of civilian deaths. In our past episodes, we focused on the roles and responsibilities of military actors to prevent and respond to civilian harm. But in many parts of South Sudan, people's trust in an ethnically divided military that has committed serious violations against civilians and that has yet to be significantly reformed is still very low. And so many people's hope is that the police will protect them as they try to rebuild their lives amidst ongoing insecurity. Exactly. You know, protection of civilians is not merely a military affair. It's a state's responsibility overall to protect the rights of its people. And war versus peace isn't always clear-cut. At some point, states get to a situation where protection of civilians becomes a question of implementing and upholding the law, so that people are able to continue or start living their lives in relative peace and security. Law enforcement can contribute to that or they can contribute to continued insecurity. To explore this issue in more detail, my PAX colleague and fellow producer of this podcast, Aaron Bell, spoke to people in South Sudan about general police performance, community perceptions on security and law enforcement, and what may happen when people don't feel that they can rely on the police for protection. My name is John Malit Mabor. 
I work for PAX as senior project officer under the POC, the Protection of Civilian for, uh, Department, uh, under a project called Human Security Survey. So I'm based in Juba. John, you mentioned the Human Security Survey. Could you explain a little bit what that survey is, what it intends to achieve, uh, and why you think it is important work uh, for PAX? The Human Security Survey is a project in which uh, the views, the information is collected from the civilian uh, about their uh, personal security uh, in terms of what happened to them and uh, what do they perceive in the environment that they live. So every time we go down to collect information regarding such kind of things and then we bring it uh, for analysis and then try to bring the authorities these stakeholders to discuss the findings that this look your civilians or your people have mentioning have been mentioning this they say they have problem with a b c d and they have been happening in your presence as as the government or the local government what can we do about them or what can you do about them because the government is considered the primary uh, uh, actor in terms of providing security and protection of civilians this, uh, in the way we do it, we, we train enumerators and then we send them to the field uh, and then they collect information from the civilian. That information is brought back for analysis and we call the, a big meeting where authorities are present to, to see the views of the community and then try to discuss. In that process, they will agree or disagree with some of the findings. But at the end, it engages some kind of discussion. How how come that this thing happened this way? And uh, what have you been doing? And uh, now that they have happened, what is the way forward? So if I'm understanding correctly, PAC sends people into communities in South Sudan to hear directly from civilians themselves about what security threats they are facing and what their everyday concerns are. Exactly. PAX conducts the human security survey in five states in South Sudan. And it not only gives us valuable information about what is going on, it also enables us to then call these big meetings that John mentions, in which community representatives are then brought together in the same room with relevant stakeholders to discuss what issues came up during the survey and how they can be solved. These stakeholders can include local chiefs, United Nations officials, and also the local police. And what are those surveys picking up? What are people raising as their biggest safety concerns? Well, besides John, Erin also spoke to a former enumerator of the survey. She used to visit communities around Central Equatoria State to ask people about exactly this question. She's asked to remain anonymous for security reasons. Hello, an enumerator for the Human Security Survey in the past years for PACS and a member of the Community Security Committee that normally addresses issues that are identified during the survey in the areas of Mangala, and Rajav Payam. Uh, I am from Central Equatorial State, and I am, besides being a, an enumerator and a member of the member of the Community Security Committee, I also do personal business. Some of the issues that were identified during the survey uh, includes land grabbing. It includes rape cases. It includes kidnapping. It includes um, the cattle keepers and the farmers. I will elaborate more about the cattle keepers and the farmers. The cattle keepers, these are people from the Bor area that come with their cattle and they intend to collide with the farmers. Where they, um, the cattle keepers normally 
leave their cattle to graze on to graze on the farmers um uh, farms which is not ideal so when the farmers start to get up and try to talk to them they try they they get so violent on the farmers and they are also identified to be some of the people who do raping of women in case they go to their farms and also when they go to collect other things like firewood some of the cattle keepers are identified to be the rape uh, identified to be raping the women so these sound like matters where people might typically seek police assistance does law enforcement play a role here do people actually turn to the police well, both she and John were quick to point out that many South Sudanese do not regard the police as a very reliable or effective force. And this is not without reason. During a survey along in Mangalapayam, along the riverside in Bilinyang, a woman um, felt they were totally not being protected by the police, um, basing on an incident where the Murule happened to attack their area. Murule is a tribe, they were attacked by this Murule and their children were taken. By the time they went to make a report to the police, the police did not turn up. First of all, it was the police were far away from where they were staying. And then two, the police did not turn up. They said the, place, the distance is far and they didn't have a vehicle and they did not have fuel. So the case was just left like that because the Murule had already gone with the children. The children were not gotten back and they feel as mothers, they were in a loss and they don't feel protected at all from the police. When in the human security survey, you actually ask people about the police. Um, how do people generally rate uh, the police like are they considered effective reliable the police uh, had been considered effective by some part of the of the community and others considered it ineffective according to our, our data a big group of people uh, consider police to be ineffective in terms of response to cases in terms of investigation in terms of uh, uh, settlement of dispute that, that has been brought before them. So they say when there is an incident and you report the, 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 the issue to the police, you expect them to respond immediately, but uh, this is not what is going on. So there has been uh, different views from different communities. Those who are lucky that their issues have been addressed successfully consider the police as effective. But the majority of the civilian, the majority of the communities in our five project locations consider police to be ineffective. And, w and why do you think that is, John, that the police isn't able or is, is the police not able to respond to people? Is it not willing? And what are some of the issues in them providing security? From our validation meetings, in which we also invite the authorities, including the police or the law enforcement personnel, uh, we could see the findings of the communities speaking this thing that we are speaking now. And uh, when we ask them, why is that happening? Some of them honestly agree that indeed, we don't respond according to the expectation of the civilian or expectation of the community because we have some challenges that are facing us as institution. Some, uh, in, in certain cases, 
and a situation is reported at a far distance and we may not have a car or fuel and even if we may have a car or fuel the roads conditions are not good that we respond immediately and then uh, some 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 members of the police the 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 the, the, the personnel the the the, the soldiers sometimes don't respond simply because they lack salaries there is no motivation there are so many things that they could mention that indeed those things happens but we have our own challenges, including infrastructure, logistics, and etc. And we've heard this time and again, that police sometimes simply don't have the capacity to respond to incidents in certain areas in a timely way. Now, at this point, it's important to remind ourselves that South Sudan is a relatively young country. In fact, it's the youngest country in the world, having gained independence only as recently as 2011. A nation is born, the symbol of sovereignty and identity flies for the first time. The scene in South Sudan is nothing less than electric. Hundreds of thousands of people converge on Juba, the world's newest capital city. They celebrate their long-awaited independence, marked by two civil wars over five decades and countless lives lost. Juba is one big street party, but once the celebrations end, the challenging task of nation-building begins. Now, As discussed before, civil war has continued on and off since independence. This also means that, in terms of infrastructure, there's still a lot to be done. And the police have a point when they say that they're facing a lot of challenges in this area that prevent them from carrying out their jobs effectively. But this recent history of conflict also brings other challenges. You also indicated that the police sometimes tells you well, you know, we want to go and respond to a security incident, but we're actually unable to, or we're not being paid enough. What other things do you hear from the police themselves in terms of what they actually need to start fulfilling their role more effectively? As you know, we just got independent. And initially, South Sudan was uh, completely founded from the organized forces from the SPLA, which was the rebel movement. And when we got the country, the SPLA, who was only taught how to shoot and kill were brought back to the were brought to the country and then they were divided into the different security organs some have been taken to the army some were just taken to police di- to police directly and others were taken to prison and others are taken to wildlife and fire brigade these people all come from the SPLA which is a military background that was fighting for the independence of south sudan some have still the mentality of the army they, they don't have the mentality of the, of the police. In both interviews we did, it became very clear that this lack of effective police performance greatly affects how people then start to perceive the police. Civilians pointed out many reasons for why they don't trust the police. One of them being that a lot of police officers are recruited from armed groups and join the police without having received prior or sufficient training. Most of the police are not trained. Um, there's a lot of illegal recruitment that takes place where um, people are influenced by by key decision makers to join the police. And in most cases, they are home. They are not trained. They are just given the uniform, the gun, and the ID, and then they are sent for operation, of which most of them do not know the rules or the procedures of the police. This is where you find there is a lot of gap uh, among the police. In most cases, 
police take bribes a lot and then they charge in favor of whoever has money. For the police to make a step or to attend to their rescue, in most cases they ask for money, which the citizens do not have at times uh, for the police to attend to them. This really is so discouraging to the citizens and they feel the police are not there for them, but actually they are just money-oriented. Then there is also a lot of tribalism in along the police sector. So if a specific tribe is in a play, it is on duty, and I'm from a specific tribe, and I've come to report the case, they will not take it so serious simply because I don't speak their language. So they feel I'm wasting their time at times. And if not, they'll start asking for money and dodging me here and there. So there's a lot of tribalism in the police sector, which needs to be really worked upon, such that the people can have um, trust in the police. The people have a negative mindset because these very police hire out their guns to criminals. They hire out their guns to criminals to do criminal acts during the course of the night. And then in the morning, the owner of the gun is paid. So these criminal acts will never stop simply because they're using the guns of the police to do all these activities. So I'm hearing a number of serious concerns from communities, from lack of training to corruption, to bias in who police are willing to help, to sometimes arming violent actors directly. Those are significant complaints. And of course, there are also police officers who do their best, right? Who actually want to show up for the communities they're serving. And if we look at all the data collected in the Human Security Survey, we do see some important nuances. While many civilians point out these weaknesses in police performance, in most locations where we survey, the police are still, relatively speaking, the security actor that the people consider the most accessible or the most reliable. Up to 80 or 90% of respondents may indicate so in certain locations. And the incidents that were mentioned about police hiring out their own guns fortunately do not seem to be the norm across South Sudan. But yeah, there are a lot of issues that need to be addressed. And as came up in the interview, all of this makes it very discouraging for people to go to the police. And this can have far-reaching implications as people are forced to deal with security incidents on their own. Or they may not be able to deal with them at all. Majority of the people tend to keep quiet in case of an incident. For example, a lady was raped by thieves who happened to attack them in the night. She decided to keep quiet and not go to the police and go through that trauma on their own, on her own, I mean. So most people don't go to the police. Besides the raping that took place, they took items, but she decided not to go to the police because they feel they will not get the justice that they need. Above all, the perpetrators will not be caught and the community will be having now a negative mindset towards her. She will be seen as somebody who has been raped by unknown people, then they will start uh, they will start mocking her in the society so they tend to they tend to keep quiet and not and not make raise an alarm about it <laughs> 
what happens if the police doesn't show up? When the police doesn't show up, there are incidences of cutter raiding. Properties have been lost in this most of these locations that we, we operate. And there has been revenge because if the community do not receive protection, they take the law into their hand and then they use revenge. Because if the police did not come into the scene at the right at, at the right time to rescue the properties or to rescue the life of the people, then the community will reorganize themselves and follow the, 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 the attackers and then do the same. And of course, the police will just be very far away and the community will go on to do this. This has also prompted the formation of what they call the local armed youth. Uh, from this, from a certain community, they, they find ways of buying guns and use their own local youth uh, as, as, as an alternative protection, at least to bridge the gap or maybe provide their local protection, which is also good in one way and disastrous in the other way because they cause conflict and they cause harm against the other. The fact that they are not organized, they don't have central command, they don't have rules, and they don't have code of conduct, they only protect their own community, and then they use the, the gun or the arm that they have to cause destruction to the neighboring community. If the police failed, if there is no proper protection of properties and life, then the community will be, will be forced to, to use the local armed youth. You mentioned cattle raiding as being a specific example, well, of a security incident that is actually common in South Sudan and where local armed youth may actually uh, start to intervene. I think a lot of people outside of South Sudan or outside of your context may not know exactly what cattle raiding is and why it happens. Could you give a bit of context to that particular security phenomenon? Yeah, in South Sudan, uh, most communities are, are cattle keepers. They keep cattle. Few of them are farmers. And uh, because of uh, uh, proliferation of arms in the hand of civilians and because of the importance of the cattle in the life of South Sudan, especially the Dinka and the Nuer, uh, cattle is very important, it's playing a very central role. Uh, it is uh, used to marry. When you want to marry, when you want to get a wife, you have to have a number of head of cattle. And if you want to buy a good uh, house, you need to sell some cows. If you want to take your children to school, you need to sell the cows. Cattle are very important. And now, because of the gap of law enforcement and because of the presence of arms in the hand of civilians that has no control, they, some of the youth use uh, cattle raiding. Cattle raiding is a process of going to a certain nearby community. You take those cattle by force and then you start fighting there. You chase the owner, you kill the owner or the owner kills you and then you take away the, the, the cattle. You keep them in your territory and, you, and then you defend them. When you want to marry now, you can pay a number of uh, cows to your in-laws and they will be given your wife. You don't get these cows from the this, this small um, uh, work that you do, agricultural work or some small income. It cannot get, the only shortcut is to go and raid, get your gun with, with a lot of ammunition, a lot of bullets. You fight, you take hundreds of them. That will give you your wife. Since there is no accountability, of course, they will go and raid. The only state that has stopped it now is Lex, where the governor has put some top rules against cattle raiding. But some other locations like Jongle, as we speak, there has been a violent 
between com communities. Uh, Nuer law of Jongle is fighting itself, is raiding itself. The people, the Murle people, are raiding people from Bor, and uh, including child abduction. All these kind of things are going on. And as, as what you just said, it is as a result of escalation. It is as a result of revenge. You raid, the other people go and revenge. Then it escalates. It is a revenge, a cycle of revenge goes on and the violence continues. Our guests have described what sound like two typical responses to ineffective or even predatory policing in South Sudan. Either people don't report incidents at all, since they don't trust the police to respond effectively, or they feel forced to take matters into their own hands, which can contribute to cycles of violence and retaliation. And it's understandable, right? It's a bit like what John said about these local armed youth being a good thing on the one hand, because it may be the only form of protection civilians in certain parts of South Sudan enjoy, and it being completely disastrous on the other hand, as it severely undermines security and the rule of law in both the short term and the long term. I'd also argue that it's not a phenomenon that's limited to South Sudan. We see other places around the world where a lack of trust in the central government and police may fuel the proliferation of arms among civilians. If we're looking ahead, what is actually needed to start bridging this so-called law enforcement gap? In the survey, I suppose you also ask people about what they want the police to improve. Uh, are there concrete suggestions, things that people are mentioning? If the police do this and that, then maybe this will lead to better protection of our civilian communities. We do find recommendations from uh, our data, from the civilians themselves, and from the validation meeting. Uh, when we ask the civilian, what do you think? Because they may find they may talk of the uh, uh, inadequacy of the law enforcement in their villages, so that causes this gap, this insecurity, because there is no maximum protection. So what they suggest is that there is a need for uh, a sufficient deployment of security forces, that that the presence of the police forces is best appreciated in number one. And then not only presence, they need to be presence and they are effective, they do their role. So their performance and their presence is something that they recommend that they need enough deployment of police forces in the community. And then these police forces that have been deployed are the trained ones, those who know what they do, those who know their work, not just a number, but people who knows how the police is, the policing. And then uh, this is what they recommend, that they need to be equipped and they need to be deployed among the communities. And they need to be facilitated with some of the mobility and uh, offices, stationaries, and etc. For South Sudan to have a better, a better police force, there's a lot that needs to be done. They need to ensure that all these police are paid, paid in time or on time. And they should be given enough salaries that can sustain their families. Most of them have been forced into the police or into these criminal acts because majority will have, most of them have two, three families that they can sustain with the government salary. And they are forced to the extreme and do some of these things. So a lot needs to be done. The for the system to have it, to, for the system to be clear, and for the community or the people, the citizens to gain trust in them, 
a lot of training needs to be done for 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 better performance of the police uh, the police um, during recruitment there should be a minimum standard for everyone who is interested in joining the police for example it could be a senior for liver or it could be somebody who has um a higher level of education where he can read can write can make proper judgments and not just and not just um recruiting people anyhow um i also feel the police should avoid bribes and this is also where the international community contribute to improving police performance the international actors should help the police in training they, they should train them help in development of curriculum for the police training also and provide part of logistics, including the office stationaries and computers. I think by doing that, they will also help the government or the community. And it's not only people outside of the police who are saying this. Over the years, PAX has numerous times also spoken directly with police representatives about what support they need. And police officials keep mentioning a number of priorities. Most prominently, a need for better training of the existing police force as well as an increased police presence in rural areas and better equipment and supplies. Although, from what I'm hearing from our interviewees, it doesn't sound like more resources will fix all of the issues that civilians face in dealing with the police. What other needs does PAC see in South Sudan? Well, it's absolutely key that trust between the police and the people that they are meant to protect is being built or rebuilt in South Sudan. And that often starts with a conversation. After each survey round, John and his colleagues purposefully bring together community and police representatives to reflect on the findings together and to discuss a way forward together. They need to understand each other's perspectives, and the police need to start showing civilians that they are there to serve them. Which brings me to one of the most important elements for trust building, accountability. It's highly frustrating to civilians that police can not only get away with poor performance, but that police officers sometimes also get away with behavior that itself harms civilians. Whether it's corruption, ethnic discrimination or bias, or these more rare cases of collaboration with criminal groups. South Sudan needs a better system of upholding and being accountable to the law and to its people. Also, and especially where it concerns those who are meant to protect them. Seeing more accountability will help rebuild trust in the national police forces. And it'll also make it safer and easier for international actors to provide the South Sudanese police force with the material support and resources that they say they need. That's it for today's episode of the Civilian Protection Podcast. In our next episode, We'll explore community-led protection efforts in Nigeria, looking at ways that civilians have organized to advocate for their own protection needs. The Civilian Protection Podcast is brought to you by Center for Civilians in Conflict and PACS, two NGOs working to improve the lives of civilians caught in conflict. Today's episode was written by Aaron Bell, with assistance from Anton Quist, Hans Rao, Lauren Spink, Annie Scheel, and Mark Arlasco. It was produced by The Podcast Guru. Hajar Naili made sure we're online. We would like to thank our guests for joining us and for sharing their insights. You can find us on Spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts. We want to hear from you. Share your thoughts on this episode or topics you would like us to cover by emailing civilianprotectionpod at gmail.com. 
Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ProtectionPod to stay up to date on our episodes and guest speakers and to get behind the scenes content like full interviews. You can also find behind the scenes content and interviews on our YouTube channel, as well as civiliansinconflict.org slash podcast and protectionofcivilians.org. Thanks for listening.